I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Ted Burnham. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 1st, 2014. Coming up, astronomy through the ages. We'll learn how technology has shaped the study of stars throughout history and what trends mean for our future relationship with the night sky. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Next time you're gambling or playing the stock market and you think you're on a winning streak, don't look to a monkey to bring you back down to Earth. Turns out they suffer from hot hands bias too. A new study shows that monkeys tend to believe they're on winning or losing streaks, even when it's purely random events. In other words, they can get fooled, just like humans. The fact that this tendency appears in both humans and monkeys suggests that believing in luck isn't an error in decision-making, it's an evolutionary trait. The scientists say understanding this hardwired tendency could inform the treatment of gambling addiction and help people be more cool-headed when buying or selling stocks. The study has just been published in the July edition of the Journal of Experimental Psychology, Animal Learning and Cognition. Is Picasso more pleasing than Degas? Is Warhol worth more than Manet? If these sound like questions for an art historian, think again. You may want to ask your taste buds. Fans of cooking shows like Iron Chef know that plating, the way food is arranged and presented on the plate, is an essential part of the fine dining experience. But does creative presentation justify the high price of haute cuisine? Does it actually make the food taste better? Well, yes, it really does. Researchers at the University of Oxford discovered that people were willing to pay a lot more for a salad when it was arranged to resemble one of Kandinsky's abstract paintings instead of the normal hodgepodge of veggies. People also thought the art-inspired plating tasted much better, even though both salads had exactly the same ingredients. Previous research has shown that our taste perception can be swayed by the color of the plate that our food is served on, and that the size of the plate can affect the size of the portions we serve and how much we eat. So this bias for artistic food is just one of many optical illusions affecting our diet. The research was published in the journal Flavor. Big bubbles make children smile. Tiny bubbles add sparkle to champagne and beer. Basically, a bubble happens when a glob of one material gets trapped inside another, usually a gas trapped in a liquid. But the steps get hard to follow when bubbles are smaller than a pinhead or even microscopic. On the plus side, microbubbles can make a liquid boil faster and they make it easier to see ultrasound images. On the downside, too many microbubbles can damage anything from a ship's propeller to the lining of your arteries. Now scientists in the Netherlands have documented a way to predict how many microbubbles form. They call the process tribonucleation. Tri stands for three. To make tiny bubbles takes three layers, a top surface, a bottom, and a liquid in the middle. Gently rubbing these three layers together, and the scientists do stress gently, seems to produce the most bubbles. Temperature, texture, and materials matter too. The scientists believe their new recipe for controlling microbubbles will benefit industry and health. Find out more in this week's Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences.
You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Ted Burnham. If I ask you to close your eyes and imagine an astronomer, what do you see? Maybe you think of a lone figure hunched all night over the eyepiece of a telescope in a big domed observatory. Maybe you think of Jodie Foster as Ellie Arroway in the movie Contact, wearing headphones to listen in on cosmic radio waves at Arecibo. My mind always wanders back to a woodcut of Tycho Brahe's 16th century observatory filled with ingenious equipment for making naked-eye observations of the night sky. But do any of these idyllic images actually resemble the life of an astronomer today? And how are new technologies and big data changing the way we study stars today and in years to come? Here to discuss those questions are Dr. John Bally, a professor of astronomy at the University of Colorado, and Dr. Seth Hornstein, director of the Summers Bosch Observatory on the CU campus. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So uh, how accurate were those images? Let's start with that. Uh, John Bally, where do you spend your work day? Well, mostly in the office or even operating telescopes remotely from my kitchen. (laughs) Well, we live in a remarkable time because with computers and sensors, we operate instruments remotely um, in space, but you don't have to be at the eyepiece or in the dome anymore. And you do it through a laptop at the kitchen table? Oftentimes, yes. And uh, Seth, where do you spend your time? Well, like John said, mostly uh, in my office. I focus on teaching at the university, but also as a director of the observatory, um, I spend my time over at the observatory, and we have more old-fashioned, you might say, telescopes. We have a few telescopes uh, that we use for our classes, and so I spend my time over there uh, working on those. And those are operated more directly, sitting in front of the telescope, usually still connected to a computer, um, but uh, at the telescope itself. So uh, so those images, some of them aren't entirely inaccurate, uh, but uh, computers have come to play such a big role. Um, and this, this phrase, uh, big data astronomy, uh, is something that seems to have come up in the last couple decades. So uh, we want to talk about the, that, that relationship between technology and astronomy through the ages. Um, and of course, astronomy is uh, as old as humanity, just about. We've always been interested in looking up, right? Exactly. Uh, so uh, if we go back to archaeological sites, we see pyramids and temples uh, that are sort of arranged to mark the solstice, like Stonehenge uh, is in, in England, or, or even some sites in Egypt. Um, what, what, else do we, what else do we know about those, those earliest astronomical attempts? Well, of course, the stars were fundamental for calendar keeping and figuring out when to plant crops. We we were much more in tune to the cycles of the night sky in ancient times. We used it to time our crops and when winter is coming and and the seasons. And we were aware of things, but all of our knowledge came to us just through our naked eyes. We had no instruments other than the human eye. And that situation, sorry, Seth, did you have something? Well, as you say that, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention. And if you need it to survive, if your plants are going to die, if you don't plant at the right time, you'll figure out how the stars work and how the stars and, and seasons and moon phases can tell you about what's coming up in terms of seasons and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there, there's been uh, a number of advances in technology over the centuries. Uh, the invention of telescopes in the 1600s, that was the first time that we were able to, to do more than naked eye observations isn't it? Yeah, that, that actually allowed Galileo and others to really make uh, accurate measurements of the skies. Um, and so then they were able to refine positions of planets and, and things of that sort. Well, of course, it led to a realization that there's vastly more to the sky than we had ever thought. We discovered the moons of Jupiter. We saw that the Milky Way consists of millions of stars. 
Um, we discovered the phases of Venus, the, even the rings of Saturn. And so we realized that the cosmos was a much more intricate place. Even in the very beginning, that helped us identify our position, you know, with, with the heliocentric, the sun-centered versus the geocentric, and the idea that um, making observations of the sky could kind of tell us our place in the universe, in the solar system, that sort of thing. It also ushered in a revolution in a sense that we came to understand the laws of mechanics and gravity. We were able to predict for the first time the motions of planets and heavenly bodies in the solar system, and that led to many ad other advances. Uh, can you give an example? Um, maybe something from the stars uh, affecting life here on Earth? Well, of course, navigation was a huge issue, the determination of longitude in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. Early on, it was realized that the moons of Jupiter, for example, could be used as absolute clocks to determine uh, a fixed timestamp. And hence, if you um, measured your, um, what time it is locally compared to the absolute time provided by Jupiter, you could figure out your longitude. So this became a fundamental tool for navigation. So there's this interesting relationship where technology advances and lets us see further and, and more, uh, more deeply into the workings of the, the heavens and the, the cosmos around us, and then that feeds back into life right here on Earth. GPS devices wouldn't work if we didn't understand the way relativity works. In relativity, we've helped measure through um, pulsars and eclipses and things of that sort that we've been able to figure out that. So that, again, it kind of plays back into each other. So... Uh, Optical telescopes, those were the, the norm for hundreds of years. Um, and as, as uh, Seth, you said in uh, your introduction, you, the, uh, the, most of the astronomers, uh, the amateur astronomers, sky gazers, people who come to the Summers Bosch Observatory, they're still looking through an eyepiece and seeing magnified images. Um, yeah, it's, it's how we became associated with the sky, affiliated with the sky. We look up. So then the first step, of course, is just magnifying what you see with your own eyes. So it's much easier for... Um, general people for amateur astronomers to get into just seeing this is what my eye sees but sees it a little bit but the telescope sees it a little bit better so it kind of is still connected to what we can understand and what we see with a with our naked eye uh how do people respond when they when they look through a telescope maybe for the first time and, and see things what are some of the reactions you get there's always oohs and ahs um being able to see uh the craters on the moon and we've seen again it's kind of this thing where we've seen the craters on the moon with a naked eye, but when you see them close up with the telescope and you can actually see the shadows, you can see the peaks inside the crater. Um, I think one of my favorite things to show people is to look at Saturn. Everybody always swears that the Saturn is a sticker that we've placed on the telescope because it looks, it looks fake. It doesn't look <laughs> round and it looks like this little image with rings, but it's the first time where you can actually see something that's not familiar. It's not the moon or the earth or, or the sun. It's, so it's, it's very awe-inspiring, I think. It, it's alien in a way. Yes. Even though it's yes. still right here in our, our cosmic neighborhood. Um, so optical telescopes, uh, they, they don't, don't exactly magnify, right? I mean, they, they sort of magnify, but they're also collecting light. That's um, the main function is to collect light as much as possible to, so you can see fainter and fainter objects. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, it, it, it enhances our vision, but it's still basically limited to what we can see through the telescope, right? It's limited to visual light. Correct. Yes. It's just, it's just a, it's just a improved, uh, another thing it does is it um, gives us a little better angular resolution so we can see finer details than we can with our eye, but it's still effectively what we see with the eye. Yeah, and of course in the 20th century we've undergone an absolute revolution in technology and since the 1960s we've had for the first time in human history access to the entire spectrum. Uh, this is because we've launched spacecraft and telescopes into space to get above the interfering effects of the Earth's atmosphere 
and also because of the rise of our electronics technology, we've developed sensors that work throughout the spectrum, from gamma rays all the way up to radio waves. And so I would say we are in a fortunate position. We are the first generation in human history to actually see the universe for what it really is. And it's ushering in an absolute revolution in understanding of the cosmos. And that's a trend that's been going on, uh, as you said, since the, since the 60s, um, at least. That's right. Uh, so these, uh, these other telescopes, um, radio waves, infrared light, x-rays, gamma rays, uh, how, how have they changed the, the, the way that we actually look at the sky? What are we looking for that we couldn't see before? Different objects give off light in different wavelengths. And so we can see uh, different properties. We can see different chemicals that might emit at outside of the visible wavelength. So I think we're getting a fuller picture of what we're actually seeing and, and being able to really uh, analyze what's happening in an object by looking at its radio waves to see maybe some of the cooler, cooler molecules and x-rays to see what's happening at really the highest temperatures. So it allows us to get a, a full picture and a full description, I think, of what an object is doing. So we're, we're seeing stuff that would otherwise be invisible because it's not giving off light in the visible range. Um, and it's, it's glowing faintly in the infrared or in the x-ray spectrum or giving off bursts of gamma rays like uh, uh, quasars. Yes. Or, and, and I tell my students that it's all still light. It's all still, in some cases, it's produced by slightly different methods. In some cases, it's produced by the same methods that we're familiar with. So it's really, it's foreign to us because we don't see it with our own eyes, but it's really no different uh, when you go out from visible to infrared and, and uh, radio waves. It's really the same uh, physical process and physical uh, um, radiation that's going on. So it's a, a look into the hidden universe. Um, you, I want to remind everyone that you're listening to How on Earth on KGNU. I'm Ted Burnham, and we're speaking with astronomers John Bally and Seth Hornstein, uh, both affiliated with the University of Colorado here in Boulder. So uh, this, the 20th century, uh, in addition to bringing us the electronics for uh, looking at the whole electromagnetic spectrum and, and seeing more than we ever could uh, in the sky, it also brought us computers and the internet. And with that, we got the ability to distribute massive amounts of data around the world um, and, and to process it in, in these massive batches. Um, and I, a recent example that, that I've been interested in is the data coming back from the Kepler Space Telescope, uh, which is looking for planets and uh, around other stars. And it generates so much data that it takes years for them to go through the backlog and release this data. Um, so, so does this really put us in the, the era of big data astronomy? Is that, is that uh, an accurate way to talk about some of the trends going on? Absolutely. I, I think so. I think we're no longer limited. Um, technology is still improving and allowing us to make better telescopes, but really Moore's Law is coming into play. We can build bigger and bigger um, detectors, and so we can gather more and more information. So, yes, we're, we're coming to a point where we are no longer limited, even though the, the quantity of data we're creating is huge, we're not actually limited by storage capacity. We're limited by processing ability, and, and there's just so much data there that how do you um, deal with all of that? And I would say we're limited by brain power or the lack thereof. I mean, almost every, we have well over two dozen space telescopes operating now in various wave bands, all the way from X-rays, such as the Chandra X-ray Observatory, the Herschel Space Observatory in the submillimeter just finished its mission. Uh, we have, each one of these missions has returned an enormous amount of data, and to put it all together, to analyze it, to tell us what does this tell us about the cosmos and the processes within it, um, is an increasingly daunting task. And we need more brain power to help us analyze the, the volumes. And, and one of the things that I'm fascinated with in, in modern astronomy and, and, and uh, science 
as John's pointing out, we need more brain power. And so there's this new um, uh, revolution called citizen science, where it's no longer restricted to just astronomers doing the science. We've realized that a lot of the stuff that's going on, you can do with minimal training. And so there's a, a website called Galaxy Zoo, where they realized they had millions of uh, galaxies in the data. And you didn't need a PhD to be able to analyze it. You need to be able to see, is this a spiral or is this a blob or is this something in between? And so they f their first um, data release was, let's just create a website where people can log on and they made it, you could earn badges and you could earn points. And <laughs> so it became kind of a game and a competition where all the people were doing was going through and saying, spiral, spiral, elliptical, irregular, spiral, elliptical, and they could classify various galaxies. And it became remarkably successful. They thought it would take years to go through the first data set, and I think they went through it in the first week or so. Wow. Yeah. And it's an interesting le message here because people for years have tried to write automated computer programs to classify galaxies and other objects. Now, it turns out that's an extremely difficult task. The human brain is much more adept than any computer program at recognizing patterns. And so citizen scientists who have no formal training actually turn out to be better than any known computer program for classifying galaxies and other kinds of objects we get from a massive data sets. I think one of the first directions uh, that we went, that we started doing was we need more and more computers. And we thought that computers, just, just increasing computer power was going to solve the problem. But then we realized that computers can't do everything. As John's saying, the human eye can really determine differences much better than you can write a code to do it. Um, so I think citizen science is going to continue to be very important as we get these large data sets that you can't just feed through a computer, that you need to have some sort of um, discriminating eye looking at to separate or, or classify. And by the way, just to put this in another context, I think in astronomy we are undergoing an era that's similar to the great voyages of discovery of Columbus, et cetera. Uh, back in the 1600s, we discovered the continents and the planets. We mapped the world. Today we are mapping the cosmos. So uh, we, we have a, a question here that uh, you've kind of answered, I think, but uh, big data astronomy, it doesn't just make numbers, right? Because you're, you're talking about showing people pictures, and we have more pictures than we can get the computers to look at, um, or the computers can't see things that, that we can see. So, uh, so it's not just about um, numbers in this data in the sense of numbers, but uh, in the sense of these beautiful pictures of the cosmos that people can look at and also learn from. Yes, one of the new telescopes that's coming online, the large synoptic survey telescope is going to make a map of the entire sky i think every 30 days and it's looking for it's looking for variable stars and variable events but it will make an image of the sky of the entire sky every 30 days and so we'll be looking for changes but there'll be there'll be beautiful images and and for comparison uh like the the hubble deep field image that a lot of people have seen of uh all these you know densely packed galaxies that's a tiny little piece of the sky and it had way more stuff there than we ever thought we would find. The great analogy for the Hubble Deep Field is a grain of sand held out at arm's length. So you can imagine we're going to do that with these new telescopes, you know, covering the sky with grains of sand. Still at the same resolution, still be able to see all the individual galaxies in the tiniest, um, furthest away galaxies. Wow, that that's a staggering amount of, of information. Um, so uh, what, what I like about this big data... Um, this big data sort of research opportunity um, is that not only does it get people involved, it's, it's the way that it, it sort of parallels trends that are happening in politics and um, in, in society where we have social media, we have, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've got positive trends like uh, social media bringing people together, allowing people to collaborate on projects. Uh, and we've also got things like uh, these, these NSA data scandals where they're talking about big data and they're also gathering more data than they can possibly uh, 
use be, just because of the, the same limitations um computer power brain power uh with with astronomy generating all this data um how useful is it to have these massive data sets that we can't we can't always uh count on getting every last little pixel or every last little uh little data point out of it well the main goal here is to look for patterns that tell us something profound about the way things work in the universe and it that's a challenge you know oftentimes we have to collect huge volumes of data to see a pattern which is very subtle. An example of studies of cosmology. One of the things you have to realize is telescopes are like time machines. We look back in time. The more deeply, the more distant an object is, uh, the further back in time uh, we, we see the light that comes from it. So telescopes literally allow us to probe the entire history of the universe from the Big Bang to the present. To understand what this data is telling us, though, uh, often requires enormously difficult time-consuming and voluminous measurements. An example is, is, is the cosmology studies that have been recently emerging and telling us about the earliest seconds of the Big Bang. Um, the data is very um, noise-limited. The signals are faint. And so you have to collect huge volumes and sort through um, all that information to get at a few nuggets. But we are looking for patterns. That is the key, pattern recognition. Which isn't really all too different than what the early astronomers did. They looked for patterns in the sky. They would look for, well, all these stars seem to be in the same place, but this one, quote-unquote, star seems to move every night, and, and they discovered that was a planet. So really, patterns, um, they're just not as obvious anymore. We're looking, we're looking for the smaller patterns. We're looking for the smaller or the, the large statistics where we need to really count up a thousand galaxies to be able to see if there's a pattern in those things. So I think we're still doing the same astronomy that's been done for hundreds or even thousands of years, um, but we're seeing we're looking at, at finer and finer details to see them. So we, we only have about uh, a minute left for the show. Um, I'm wondering, what do you think will be the next big paradigm uh, in astronomy research? Um, you know, this what, what is big data unlocking or what new technologies might be on the horizon that would push it further? John? Now, I think the number one question in my mind right now is what is the nature of dark matter? Uh, we have learned the last few decades that ordinary matter, neutrons, protons, electrons, atoms, molecules, make up about 4% of the cosmos. Uh, something like 25% is a mysterious substance that only interacts with gravity and the weak nuclear force. We don't know what it is. And yet, even more mysterious is the so-called dark energy, which, which appears to be accelerating the cosmos. And I think these are the biggest mysteries. And the question in my mind is, what we will do with this knowledge? And I think if you look back at history, the quest for the ether in the 1860s unleashed some of the developments that led to our 20th century technology. So uh, we're, we're looking at maybe a gravity telescope as the next uh, the Well, next we thing, are looking like for that. gravity waves. I think more likely before then is, uh, is sensing neutrinos and other exotic particles mm -hmm. um, from space. All right. Well, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. We're, we're just out of time. Um, but thank you so much, both of you, for, for coming in. I've been speaking with Dr. John Bally, professor of astronomy at CU, and Dr. Seth Hornstein of the Summers Bosch Observatory. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Ted Burnham. Additional contributions by Jane Palmer. The show was engineered by Shelley Schlender, and our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. We had additional music today from Edward Artemiev. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Shelley Schlender.